0: We've got 47 survivors. I'm afraid that's all we're gonna find. Have any of them said anything to you? We're having trouble getting them to talk.
1: No, most were in shock, hypothermic. So do you know what kind of ship they were on?
0: No, and so far no vessels reported missing. No distress signals. Wait. So what then? A plane? Not according to FAA.
1: Well, it had to come from somewhere. I don't think from here.
2: What little they've said suggests they're looking for asylum.
1: Asylum. You're telling me
0: that these people are refugees.
2: That's what we're trying to find out.
0: Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of ABC's The Crossing podcast, where we'll be discussing all things Crossing-related, going in-depth on the episode you just saw, and exploring the science behind the fiction. Each week, we'll talk to the creative team who makes the show. Today, we welcome the creators of The Crossing, writers Dan Dworkin and Jay Beattie. Hello. Hi. Hi, guys. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson. And Dan and Jay, let's jump right in. The Crossing, it's the story of this group of refugees here in the United States, but they're not from another country. They're from another time. It's really kind of a fascinating concept, and there's a lot to unpack there. But first, I got to know, what's the origin of this? How did this idea come about?
1: Uh, it came about largely from a photograph. Um, it, there, there's a photograph which has now become somewhat famous. It won a Pulitzer, but it, it was of a Syrian refugee named Leith Majid who had um, crossed uh, from, he'd, he'd made his way up to Turkey and then taken a, a boat to uh, a Greek island like uh, so many Syrian refugees have done. And uh, he had just arrived, and he had two little kids with him, and the photo is of him in tears holding his little son. And uh, I'm a dad, and Jay's a dad, and if you're a dad, even if you're not a dad, you can't help but be uh, affected by this photo. And um, I sent it to Jay, and it got us thinking about refugees, and it got us wanting to do something about refugees. And shortly thereafter, very shortly thereafter, we, we fused it with our sci-fi elements, which is something we tend to do as writers. In the past, we've written we've written other pilots
2: that take kind of uh, topical issues and fuse them with genre. Yeah. I remember the email, actually, that Dan sent when he first saw that photo, which is by, I think it was Daniel Edders, his name, the photographer. And, uh, you know, we don't necessarily want to do things that were ripped from the headlines so much. And there's, there was, at the time, you know, and, and there still is, obviously, it's a big crisis going on. It was too raw, right? So, right. sci-fi gives you that distance from it. And Dan's email, he said, "What if they're from the future?" Which I, you know, immediately sparked to because, like you said, we we tend to come back to those sort of genre mashups, you know, uh, in sci-fi time and time again. And um, as we worked on the idea, we we started to wonder, well, how did they wash up on shore? How did they get here? What is the time travel device? You know, it's not a boat. It's not a plane. Um, And that led us into the conversation about them kind of being off course. And wouldn't it be interesting if they landed not just in the water, but underwater, which is those big
0: cinematic images we get in the opening of the pilot. And and that opening is, I mean, it's it's really impactful. Can you talk about shooting that? How tough was that to do? Sure. What went into it? It was interesting because I... I mean, we've, we've been writing
1: TV for a long time, and in all our years being on set, I had never actually been present for that kind of water, underwater tank shooting before. So it was pretty interesting. We built a, an enormous tank in Vancouver. I forget how many hundreds of thousands of gallons it was. And uh, it was very interesting. We had, uh, basically, in order to create the opening images, which, which we had described in, in the script, uh, we wanted it to look like a human kelp forest. Um, they did something called tiling, uh, which is a visual effect technique where they shot basically two bodies at a time. And they'd send two divers down to hold their breath for as long as they possibly could and look unconscious. And then they'd come to the surface and they'd send two more down. And we basically used the same eight or ten people. And just, uh, using this tiling te- technique, we replicated them in post. And made it look like hundreds of people.
0: But everybody was underwater. All, I mean, all, all their shots are... Absolutely. Because it looks... It, I mean, it does look real.
1: Yeah, no, it's underwater. It it's underwater. And we just augmented, like, the surrounding tank environment with, with visual effects to make it look more like they're under ocean water as opposed to under tank water. And
0: even even Leia, the, the, the small child, she was underwater as well?
1: That that was one of the coolest parts. I, 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 I was sitting there at the monitors... Um, with Leia's, uh, her name's Bailey Scoggi, who plays the, uh, the little girl. And um, I was sitting with her mom, because the mom or dad is usually on set. Sure. Especially for something like that. And in order to get her underwater, basically she needed, the, the director, Rob, what would call action only when she was about eight feet underwater. So you actually had to have a diver pull her down under the surface by her ankle settle her at about eight feet beneath the surface, surface, and then over the underwater speakers, Rob would yell, action. So, like, she's, she, I mean, and she is an eight-year-old girl. Yeah,
0: was And she freaking
1: I, out? No, that's that's my point, which I was getting to, I'm, get, I'm slowly getting to, is not at all. Like, I would have been freaking out more than her, and and more interestingly, her mom wasn't freaking out. Like, I was freaking out. I was watching this hand come up and pull this little, this diver hand come up and pull this little girl's ankle down beneath, yank it down beneath the surface, and your instinct as a parent is like, oh my god, someone's drowning my daughter. And I'd look back at her mom, and her mom's like, oh, she's fine. And she I was like, dragged, wow, you guys are professionals. She just dragged my daughter underwater. It's cool. Uh, but <laughs> Bailey was amazing. I That's, mean, on on many levels, obviously, like she's really <coughs> great in the show, and just her. I, I'm always astounded by the professionalism of child actors when they are that professional. Because yeah. I, I have a I have a Child and I can't imagine them being that professional and responsible on set, and also acting that well. It's she's very impressive. Yeah, was it,
2: there was a stunt woman, you know, who was doing some of the swimming and, sure. and her stunts. But at the end of the day, it's all Bailey because you know she does her own stunts. Essentially, <laughs> and she was big,
1: yeah, she was essentially as good at, as if I, not better
2: than the stunt girl. And that, that moment, we got for her. that moment when Reese, played by Natalie Martinez, you know, pushes her up to the surface and they separate. Dan took a screenshot of the monitor and basically said this is the shot of the
1: show. <laughs> I ran up. I remember running cuz I was at it was uh, I, I was on the on the on the ground floor and I had to run up these stairs to the 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 tank the surface where they were shooting and I just yelled at Rob and I was like, "Oh my god, that was amazing."
0: Like that I just knew that was stunning. It really was a, it's one of those iconic scenes that sticks with you and I think it's going to stick with people for a long time. Is it because of that the original picture that inspired you guys though? To have them show up underwater on the beach it was...
1: It was- I, I think the notion of, of having I mean because this, I, I think that with us and I think with most people when, when they when they hear these stories, often the most tragic element is the drownings. These water crossings, it's just and it's so it's still happening. like every week, there's another tragic story about some water crossing gone awry with mass drownings, mass casualties. And so the the idea of somehow connecting
0: the opening to water uh, was was a natural idea, I think. One thing you brought up also is that you know these people they come back in time to search for the a place where they can be. A lot of time travel fiction and stuff has people going forward in time looking for you know Mm. the utopia or whatever. (laughs) So what was the behind the decision to have people come back to this uh, what you call the long piece?
1: Well, the, the simple answer is um, just logistic. I mean, it, it, shooting, a sh- we did, I don't think we want to set a show in the future because um, that's uh, ambitious on a level that we weren't ready for. Uh, so we wanted to, uh, it, throughout the writing of the show, we wanted to really kind of make the show, aside from that one time travel element, very grounded and real and set in the real world this world from the POV of people here as opposed to trying to do a sci-fi show that's set in the future. And then the, the notion of the long piece, it's funny, I think people are going to hear that phrase and think we made it up, uh, but we didn't. I, there's a uh, there's a podcast that I listen to frequently called Hardcore History, which is this, this amateur historian named Dan Carlin who's great. I would highly recommend the podcast. Um, and I heard him talking about the long piece, which is apparently a phrase that historians use to refer to this era of existence post-World War II. Because if you listen to someone like Dan Carlin or you read history, you realize how horrific uh, the past has been in terms of uh, um, you know, uh, quality of life. For, for people, and, and this era we're living in actually is the best era that, that humanity has experienced. And
2: Even, the, long,
0: the long piece begins after World War II, right after yeah. the big you know, global theater. Did um, you think of any time setting it in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s? Or We really didn't. I, I think we wanted to, to, to take these, this arrival of
2: refugees and, and play it as, as real as possible. You know? um, their arrival on the beach... And we shot that up in uh, Vancouver on Vancouver Island. It was 30 degrees outside and raining. And It looks cold. It looks cold. It looks painful. Sure, and, uh, you know, it took several days to shoot. But it, it was important to us to make it look as, as real as possible to try to, you know, engender those feelings of empathy and compassion that you that we experienced just in seeing the photos, you know. And that was really important to us. Um, and
0: why Oregon instead of, like, washing up on the beach in, say, Los Angeles or... Rhode originally
1: <laughs> originally we, we did this when you say Rhode Island. Yeah. It was originally scripted for New England. Actually for East Coast. I don't know if we specified New England, but I think in our minds it was probably always New England. And then we did kind of um investigate that uh when it when it came time to go into pre production and it was I think it was just prohibitively cold out there at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And well, uh um, there's
2: nor'easters threatening, you know, and we were gonna put people in the water, so yeah, it seemed and the infrastructure
1: was a little sketchier than, like, up in Vancouver. I mean, so many shows shoot in Vancouver. It's a blessing and a curse. I mean, right. because they've done it so many times up there, you know it can be done. Um, it's it's a curse in that so many shows are shooting up there that the resources get a little thinned out. But, um, so, yeah. So, after we realized we couldn't do it in New England, um, Jay had suggested Pacific Northwest. Okay. And, um, which, you know uh was interesting for reasons jay Jay can talk about it's just you you don't expect people to wash in to the coast of oregon like it seems more somehow (laughs) it seems like where would they have come from yeah i mean yeah yeah, there's just it's just so bizarre that people would wash in up there it'd be bizarre if people washed in on the east coast too but just not quite as much so um so yeah we ended up there and the vancouver uh vancouver island which is where we shot that beach ended up doubling, I think, nicely
0: for, for Oregon. Yeah, it really does. But nobody should read into it, because a lot of people are going to try to read into everything, right? So should nobody should read into because there's a kind of a mysticalness to that kind of stretch of coast up there. Yeah. Um, and the woods and everything.
1: I mean, the t- texturally, all of that works for the show, I think. I think we wanted to create an ethereal spooky quality in whatever way we could. So yes, that mysticalness is
0: a bonus. But the cast of Portlandia is no, not going to show up. They're not going to jump through. I at don't any think time. so. I mean, we shot the
1: first season. It had had we talked to you earlier about that idea. Like that would have been. That's. I think actually... the cast
2: of Portlandia would be excited to learn that in the future we've uh, we've stopped eating animals and killing animals. That's true. <laughs> there might be things they're really excited about. So.
0: so when we get to you guys, you you come up with this idea for the show, and before you even get into it, you have to set up, especially with a show like this the mythology, the backstory and everything. What kind of research did you do to create this world or these two worlds, really? Well, this, this was
1: the, one of the most interesting part. Like we've been on a lot of different shows by this point. We've done a lot of different research on th- the type of research you do for television shows. A lot of law enforcement stuff, a lot of serial killer stuff, medical stuff, legal. Uh, ne- I've never had as much fun diving into research as on this show. And and that's kind of in part why we wanted, why we're excited about doing this podcast because we wanted to explore. We we had we found the research so fascinating about what the future might hold that we thought other people might there might be an audience out there that might be equally fascinated. So, yeah, we talked to futurists and climatologists and genetic engineer. We had a genetic engineer essentially on staff, like he was a a consultant, a guy named Andrew Hessel. He's actually up in, in Silicon Valley, but. Uh, he's basically a genius, uh, who's in the process of curing cancer using synthetic biology and synthetic virology. And, um, just talking to these people who are, uh, building the future, uh, w- was really interesting. And we tried to, uh, take, take some of the things that they told us and put it in the show, obviously. And, and you can see examples of that. Like, uh,
0: Like what specifically?
1: Well, you can see some examples in the pilot just and we tried not to hit people over the head with it. We tried to just inflect gently. Um, but um, the, there's a line in the pilot where one of the the refugees remarks kind of derisively about the fact that uh, their meat comes from real animals. And that comes directly from the, this futurist that we spoke to named Pablos Holman, who again, all these people we spoke to, you could just look at their TED Talks online. like they're all they've all like done TED Talks and stuff and it's awesome. and he's he's great. And he was just remarking kind of offhandedly when we were talking to him about the fact that he has a daughter and he, he believes that by the time she is older, she will look back on this time w- and be incredulous that we actually uh, use real animals for our meat. The, the, you know, the implication being we're going to be growing all our meat in labs, hmm. which which we're like, okay, well, we gotta put that in there. How do we do that? So we just threw it in with a line. And there's there's just little little allusions to, to what the future might hold, like
2: that. So we're talking we're, about actual meat, but it doesn't. It's actual meat. Have to kill it's an animal cruelty to get free, it. correct? And okay. this is already happening. They're doing Mem- it now. Memphis Meats is up in I think they're in Silicon Valley. They you know they just take a culture of you know the muscle of a cow and they they're growing you know meat and burgers and you can go online and you can go to their website and people are i've already tasted it it have should you, be on the shelves have you guys tasted it i haven't tasted it no. i haven't it that's sh- a
1: good point which next next yeah, episode maybe if we can get him we can get him to come down
2: and cook some That'd be fantastic uh, cook some steaks a smoke uh, we
0: can smoke <laughs> up <some> they
2: <laughs> may have product in stores pre-smoke. by 2020 wow you know mm-hmm. so um and i i think you know once the science is perfected you can do it with fish you can do it with pork. It's just a cost issue at that point. Yeah, but right. certainly it's
1: like if you look at the the looming issues face, facing the future of humanity, like food scarcity sure. is going to be one um, because with popu- certain population booms, you're not going to be able to keep up with... It. The demand for protein and the demand for meat is going to be hard to keep up with on a livestock level and on an acreage level. Like we're running out of uh, the U.S. at least yeah. and Brazil and the people who produce the agriculture are running out of land. So... I'm not sure what the answer is going to be, but like certainly growing food in a lab, if that was cost efficient, would be one answer.
0: But in, in one of the scenes where Leia is given a bunny and she doesn't know what a rabbit is, is that part of that or, or is this another part That's of the future question. where it, yeah, I mean, animals are extinct? When
2: it when it comes to speculating about the future, and I have a sort of answer, which I'm going to keep close to the vest about the bunnies, but uh, <laughs> poor bunnies. <laughs> but, you know, there's... Uh, there's a changing climate, there's war, there's pestilence, you know, there's disease and certain species go extinct every day. So why not, you know, the common bunny? There is, there is something that we won't spoil now though. I don't know if this is what
1: you were alluding to Jay, but like there's something Leia specific in the story that, that you will learn that explains why maybe she wasn't exposed to things like bunnies and Bibles and such um, that may or may not have to do with what we're talking about. Gotcha. Here, you know?
2: Okay. Yeah, it may be specific to her character too. Is uh, you know is and I think a lot of the allusions in the pilot can do that. She doesn't know what a Bible is. Rebecca looks up and sees stars, presumably for the first time, and she's you know clearly an adult, right? So what's that about? And you know a lot of the portrayals of the future are somewhat apocalyptic, you know, yeah. in in literature and TV and film and and in talking to all these researchers and experts, what always struck us was their optimism, you know, about the future. Because Mm. at the end of our talks with them, we would always say, are we going to be okay? You know, we talked (laughs) to Tom Wagner at NASA, who says the oceans will rise 100 inches if things keep going the way they are in the next 100 years, in which case Manhattan would be underwater. And so we're always at the end going, are we going to be okay? And and they're... They're strangely positive. They're I positive, but it, it, they, they also That's wrapped a little bit in I think in their hubris about what they're able to achieve. Yes. But
1: yeah. But they also there seems to be a consent. like we we definitely need to to, to keep moving forward. On like the, the climate front in in particular, but like yeah, yeah we he, have to keep and, up the
2: pressure exactly. Yeah, and
1: and, and it's and it's kind of a, it's a it's uh, again going to be a, a cost issue. Like they're going to develop and they are trying to develop right now technologies that'll like scrub CO two from the atmosphere. Like if you can scrub enough CO two from the atmosphere, we're going to be okay. Right. But uh, that's you know they're, they're at the 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 very the very first stages of developing that technology and certainly getting that technology out there on a level that's gonna
0: have any real effect is gonna take a long time. Is does that make does any of that DNA make it into the show because I mean are is the show optimistic about the future? Does it have a stance? I think it's both.
2: I mean it has to be because you know, obviously from the pilot if you've watched it, there's um, this kind of speciation, there's, you know, there's two groups. It becomes very, like, tribalist, right? There's the normal and the people who are advanced and feel like, you know, the analog is, almost, you know, Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. It's like, we're leaving you behind, <laughs> you know? You're right. going to become extinct. Um, and that becomes somewhat apocalyptic, and it becomes terrible for, for some people, but for the the people that have inherited the planet and have applied, you know, their intelligence and their technology to make things better... The world is a better place. For some it just isn't. The have nots, you know. So I think we want to straddle that line.
1: Yeah. In the short term, certainly though, short term, like like we it is a story about people fleeing a genocide, essentially. Yeah. So it's hard to get away from that. Like like it so if, if you had to say if you had to say is is it a is, is it, it a dirt? bright future <laughs> or a bleak future, it's certainly bleaker than it is bright. But yeah, we hope to in 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 the future, like I- explore the, the deeper the facets of you know in in what ways the future is is hopeful as
2: well. Yeah, it's certainly a cautionary tale in many respects.
0: And one of the lines about the future that struck me is I think it, it's Hannah who says it doesn't get bright like this where we're from because she needs sunglasses to shield her eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to expand on what that, that, that means that, for the
1: future? I mean, that comes from again when we were t- when we were talking to our NASA climatologist uh, Tom Wagner. He, Tom Wagner? Yeah. I believe that's right. He he said if if we weren't able to to uh, adopt those technologies that would be able to, you know, scrub CO two from the atmosphere or whatever it was, what you're going to get is mass cloud cover, like globally. So they're still subject to things like like so in other words they, they, they have experienced large cloud cover during their lifetimes and are not able to to you know not often able to see the stars and
0: not often able to, you know, have the sun poking through. Um, they talked about, um, what the refugees are fleeing, why they're coming back, uh, an extermination, a Holocaust. Uh, and I assume over the course of the series, we're going to get more information about what happened. Uh, but do you guys want to talk about, you know, what we know up to now and what happened?
1: Um, episode two will give a lot of clarity as to the mechanics of the genocide. Okay. So I don't want to spoil it. Sure. Um, but yeah,
2: suffice it to say it was a bad scene. There's some ambiguity <laughs> there, though, I think, in, in the genocide, right, in terms of how deliberate it was. Yeah. You know? there... So, uh, yeah, so it's not as clear cut as you may think, but they certainly were fleeing a bad scene. And like I said, if you use the analog of Neanderthal, it's, here's, here's this whole you know, swath of people you know, in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions that are using up the world's resources and you know, the genetically enhanced people are, like they're more entitled to it so they've got to get rid of those those people they also you know if you if you think about it with genetic engineering one of the things we're going to want to do is improve our immune system Mm -hmm. we want to build up you know protections against the evolving diseases that are out there and if you are unable to be enhanced in that way then you become a threat you know right you you know you're sort of dirty in that way and wouldn't you want to you insulate yourself from that by getting rid of those people, you know so sure. there's all there's all kinds of ways that they just this isn't pure evil in that way. you know it's like there's all kinds of ways a genetically enhanced you know population could justify you know wanting to separate from this this population
1: the So the genetic engineering uh, topic gets us to obviously another very fertile area that again on 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 this podcast, like and in, in just in, in general, we're constantly talking about. And and it's interesting because there's this, in talking to the people we spoke to, and again, just, just reading and doing the research we've done about it, there's this tension between hope and pessimism when it comes to genetic, genetic engineering, as there is with, like, AI. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of people out there who say um, that these... the the science is is going to, you know, obviously genetic engineering has the capability to cure all kinds of disease and better the lives of millions of people without a doubt, but it's also potentially a Pandora's box where you get into designer babies and then what kind of, what kind of social rifts will that cause when only the, the wealthy are able to afford upgrades to their children? And you can imagine where that goes. So there's right. lots of, there's there's two sides to that. There's two sides to the AI thing. We don't even touch on the AI very much in the show because it's, it's it, we, we had a conceit that like Apex was able to put um, the, the AI uh, genie back in the bottle. Um, but that's a whole other subject, where obviously there's a lot of, like, Elon Musk, and I listened to a Sam Harris thing the other day. Like, th- these, yeah, th- these guys, you, 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 you don't, listen to them, don't listen to them talk about AI before you go to bed, yeah. <laughs> because you won't sleep. Um, but, so anyway, that's a whole other thing th- we can Yeah, about.
2: but uh, yeah, I'm less you know, freaked out about AI, because, you know, Andrew Hessel, who's our synthetic biologist consultant, he's also a founding faculty member of the Singularity University, which is Ray Kurzweil's university up in Northern California. And they're using AI to teach themselves. They're creating like these AI professor boxes that you would go in and say, hey, I'm a synthetic biologist. I want to genetically engineer a virus to attack specifically someone's cancer. How do I do that? And then the AI, you know, who maybe at a certain point will be smarter than (laughs) than we are, can put together a curriculum for you Mm -hmm. to drive, you know, what you're studying to make, you know, the necessary breakthroughs. Wow. And that's fascinating and well, spooky. Which it's it is, I know. I always I kinda try to put the fear aside. All this you have stuff, to. What are you gonna do? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean something well, it's like are, Sam Harris. Everyone's Sam like ha- the sky's falling, the sky's falling, and and I'm just more inclined to push it forward. No, you know? I I, yeah. I
1: thank you for doing
2: that, by the way. <laughs> but like but
1: but no, just listening to Sam Harris had this great line. And the funny thing is Jay's the Sam Harris guy, not me. I just happen to be listening to a podcast that Sam Harris was talking about AI on. And he said we all have to come, he, I'm paraphrasing, we all have to come to terms with the fact that what we are doing is creating a god. And we just need to ensure that it's a god that we want to live with. And I thought that That's was genius. That's an excellent like, line, he, he's, yeah. calling, he's calling for, he wants, um, I don't know if it's him or someone else saying we need to stop down. We, we, you can't stop the evolution of technology and you can't stop AI, but we need a Manhattan Project style operation to assess and figure out like exactly where this is gonna go and how we can manage it. And how do you do that?
0: How do you ensure that? Do I like have you, no you, idea. This <laughs> is this
1: is this is why we wanna have expert guests on this show that are not us. <laughs> yeah. Like to to speak to questions like that. There will I have be, no idea.
2: There will be mad geniuses that are unchecked out there. And it's already happening in China, you know, when the crispr cas nine technology came along and we were doing that kind of, you know gene editing, um it was something that everyone was like, we can't do it in humans. We can't do it in humans. We're starting with animals first. And then right. China just was like, no, nah, we're doing it. You know? <laughs> they, yeah, on a global technic- scale, yeah. you, can't,
1: you can't. It's very tough to like to, to regulate globally these yeah. types of things.
0: Like, well, and you get into issues just when it comes down to the food. Like a lot of people who you think would maybe not want to eat animals are also probably against genetically modified food. Yeah, exactly. you're gonna get this and sort of people who are GMO, you know. Right, adverse. they're anti-GMO, then, yeah. but so they're they're not gonna be on board with this synthetic meat that's grown in a lab either. Right. Which right? yeah. the yeah. thing is, when you try to
2: speculate as to where the future goes, you have the sort of technological curve, which has its own mitigating factors in terms of, you know, expense and things like that. And then you have the social adoption curve. It's like, how fast are people going to really adopt this stuff as, you know, or, or embrace these technologies? Right. And, and that so takes a while. That, that is,
0: is, I think, really what takes longer. So, but when it comes yeah. to, like, the, the characters on the show and the genetic modifications and we see in somebody like Reese... Um, in the first show, we've seen that she has either heightened hearing or something like that, uh, strength, uh, jumping abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide, OK, we're going to reveal these aspects of what she can do in this first episode?
1: That was just kind of we just let the story inform that, you know, what that that I think those abilities manifested out of storytelling necessity. Okay. So she needed to escape the the box she was in at the airplane hangar with Jude and those DHS guards, and so she had to manifest certain physical abilities. And and um, you know her hearing the news broadcast at at the bar from across the bar in a way that a normal person wouldn't be able to. That was just again driven yeah. by the scenario that, that the situation she was in. So yeah, I don't think we set out to say in the pilot we want to
2: do hearing and. Strength and jumping. But yeah, like it did just come out of the situation. Organic. But we certainly had a conversation about how far to go with it because, again, it's we're talking about a person who's genetically enhanced, not a superhero. Right. Yeah. Not the Bionic Woman per se. You know, although maybe closer to that than.
0: Although Sam, in my head, the I'm the Marvel call, Universe. I'm calling know. her Super
2: Mom in my head.
0: Super Mom. Um, all right. Okay. Let's I can see. see the I can see the the mondo That's art for that where <laughs> she is right now, uh, but. And, and I assume there's more that she can do that we're going to find out in future episodes. Mm-hmm. There's more, you
2: know. We um, I, I we don't go crazy with it. Yeah, know? we really there's wanted
1: to keep it in an effort to not. We tried to, ha- we tried to draw this line with her where, where like Jay said, she didn't. We didn't want it to appear superheroish or or comic bookish. We wanted to try to keep it as grounded as possible. So we tried not to.
0: We try not to showcase too many abilities. And one thing I really appreciated is the humor in in the pilot episode because you need that to break stuff up. Steven Zon, by the way, is a fantastic comedic actor. Yes. I mean, yeah, he's Steve's really amazing. He's yeah. really great. Um, the juice box back and forth <laughs> yeah. was one of my favorites. <laughs> the juice there. box lives. Yeah. Did you decide? Okay, we need to make sure that this doesn't get too dark, too overwhelming, too. You know, we ugh.
1: we that was not. I mean, we always like to inject humor into our writing. That's all we've always, I mean, we've been on multiple shows with dark subject matter where we've tried to inject humor and then had it written out by the showrunner
2: just, <laughs> just kind keep of, trying. kind you know. of
1: pouted back to our office. <laughs> but so we always like to do that. That's always our instinct. But I remember at, at certain points it was the, the network, I think like w-
2: w- e- even pushed for oh, more. Yeah, they did. That's they pushed true. for more and we were like, okay, hey, we'll roll with that. It's and great. And for good reason. I mean, yeah, we, Hey, we can't help ourselves. We're just going to write, you know, humorous, humorous comedy into things. Um, maybe we're closeted comedy writers, but, uh, <laughs> The other is it does cut the the darkness, you know, of the, some of the situations, but it also helps ground the sci-fi because you need someone like Steve's on to react in the way we would react to crazy
0: ideas, you right. know, um, in a way it makes it more believable. And how people in those jobs react. Mm-hmm. Cops have those kinds of gallows humor, yes. you know, reporters, yeah. people who see those kinds of, you know, terrible situations on a regular, um, which you've dropped hints that he has seen some bad stuff in Oakland. Right. Some things went down in Oakland. Yeah, did go down. Which I imagine we will get... You will. A lot more of. Yeah. We will oh, meet yeah. Oliver. We will. we will. Oh, yes. We'll yeah. follow,
1: you'll meet Oliver sooner rather than later, for sure.
0: Another thing I really appreciate is you get a lot of answers in the first episode. Mm-hmm. You're not sitting there going like frustrated as a viewer going, what's going to happen? Where are these people all coming from? Was that a conscious decision that you didn't want to make it too vague, make it more accessible? I mean, again, I don't don't know if
1: it was a conscious decision. I think that was just how it came out. I think, I mean,
2: I don't know. But we have learned our lessons there. We've certainly been on shows that have kind of teased with too many questions and not enough answers. Yeah. And we've seen... You know there are shows out there that even if they're really successful, they are, they kind of exist as cautionary tales. But, been you know they've had seasons that spun out because they didn't answer a lot of questions, didn't move the ball. Right, but enough, I think it's
1: also our you know, I think also our natural kind of the way that we write is to kind of we write. You know we we go through plot.
0: Yeah, like we do. Like, we so, do. So, so it was, we burn it was, plot. It was kind
1: of yeah. It was kind of uh, organic.
0: And was it always a. Uh, a thought in your mind that this would be, a, you know, not 22 episodes. It was our hope. It was our hope
1: just because we, we didn't want to burn ourselves out having been on shows that are, you know, openly serialized like this one where, where if, if you, by the end of, you know, season two, you're at episode 40 and the audience is starting to get pissed yeah. because they're like, these guys are running on fumes. So, so not to say it, it couldn't be done with this show, but we, we were very happy with our, with our, Eleven
2: order. Our odd eleven episode yeah. order. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I assume in the future we're also gonna get more explanation. Are we gonna how deep into the mechanics of time travel are we gonna get? Um you get a, you get you get some. You get some.
1: Again, we, we didn't we didn't wanna dwell too much on that, but 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 certainly you're gonna meet I'm trying to think of how to how to say this without spoiling stuff sure. but like someone but with you, expertise you're going to meet a character with who ha, uh, who you haven't met yet uh, again you're going to have to wait for it but but a little bit down the line someone who has yeah intimate knowledge of the process and 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 she, she or he
2: will will factor in significantly <laughs> to the story yeah but we're we're very we're going to be very careful about not falling down the rabbit hole of time travel and the mechanisms of time travel. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so uh, we're going to do it very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> the, the people on Twitter and Reddit will keep you honest when it comes I know, to... The, I I'm like going to stay, of, no stay off Twitter and Reddit. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. Um, and then for episode two, you guys want to talk about like where we're going to go, what we're going to see, any anything that you can...
1: We're going to go to a lot of places that we've discussed today, weirdly, like, like it's not, <laughs> yeah, every time I get, we're going to go, okay. If you, if you listen back to this podcast and you hear me say, yeah, you're going to get a lot of clarity of that. And like, that's where we're going in episode two. <laughs> like you're going to, you're going to get clarity as to, uh, w- what happened to, to these people, what the, you know, more specifics on the, the, the genocide you're going to get, you know, um, you're, we're going to, we're going to go into a couple backstories a little bit more in depth. You're, 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 you're certainly, you're going to get a lot about Reese's backstory, Reese and Leia um in mm. episode 2
2: and uh and yeah, it's just going to keep evolving. Very cool. Yeah, you'll also have answers on what becomes of our refugees. Um yeah. just to bring it back to Laith Majid, I recently read a follow-up epi- uh, article on him. He he was the one who was in that photo um and made the crossing with his wife actually and four kids and they are now in Germany. Germany. Yeah. Living in some army barracks, you know, and trying to start their lives over, you know, and so, but there's you know, it's, it's a picture
1: of them like they're all smiling, and you're like, oh my god, it's just like no, it's an amazing before and after. Yeah, like.
2: it's they're they're grateful, but it also brings to mind just you know the, their journey, you know, it's still still yeah. beginning, and you know, and, and in episode two, you're gonna see the beginning of how these refugees um, are going to live and what's gonna happen to them in this country.
0: Fantastic, guys. Well, I can't wait to see where the show goes. And wherever it goes, we'll talk about it here on this podcast. Um, So that's all we have time for this week. The Crossing Podcast is a production of Brick Moon Fiction. I'd like to thank you guys, the Crossing creators, Dan Dworkin and Jay Beattie. Thanks, man. This was fun. Thanks. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson. And we'll cross paths next week. This
2: has been a production of Brick Moon Fiction. For more information, visit brickmoonfiction.com. For questions and comments, email brickmoonfiction at gmail.com.